Hello, you're listening to a podcast from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Radio Maria is a 24-7 Catholic radio station broadcasting online via our app, Radio Maria Play, and on DAB in an increasing number of areas. You can follow us on social media. And if you enjoy this program, please do click like and subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Radio Maria relies entirely upon listener donations. We have no other sources of funding, so please do consider supporting us with a monthly or one-off donation so that we can continue to keep providing great programming free at the point of access. To donate or find out more, visit us at radiomariaengland.uk. are listening to Radio Maria. It is time for Credo. It is Tuesday. And as usual on a Tuesday, we have the delight of welcoming Derek Williams to speak with us again. And this is part two of a new series on tithing. And the title today is Tithing Christ as the First Fruits. Derek, on behalf of all of us who are a community listening at the moment, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us again. Thank you very much. It's great to be part of the community, even if I'm the noisy one. So <laughs> praise God for that. And um, I'm looking forward to taking your listeners on a little journey as to what are the first fruits today. Thank you, Derek. We'll hand you hand ourselves over to your to your teaching. Superb. Welcome, listeners. So I've got my Bible open on one Corinthians chapter fifteen. And uh, I'm just going to read out a, a paragraph for you. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So there's two things here I want to just draw to your attention. First, this idea of resurrection, which many people actually, in their reality of their lived day-to-day -day lives, um, don't quite don't always accept the, the idea that this body of mine um, is going to be raised from the dead and is going to be immortal. And this is the sort of stuff that you watch on the scene, um, some movie titles, you know, the, the sense of immortality and the search for the eternal spring of youth and so on. You have it. As Catholics, you have it. We have to own it. We have to believe in it. We have an obligation. This is a core of our faith. In fact, in my Bible, I have a footnote 
um, which I've actually written in. It's not a footnote from the authors. It's from me, which says, at the heart of the kerygma. What is kerygma? Greek word meaning proclamation. It's at the heart of our proclamation, the resurrection of the dead. And it gives us hope, but we have to have the faith to believe in it. Now, Paul writes about the kerygma, the fact that there is Christ has been raised from the dead. And in verse 20, he says this very interesting phrase. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he uses the word first fruits, which comes from the Torah. It comes from the Jewish law. And in order to understand what first fruits is, we do need to take a look at it. But first, I want to take a little look at uh, John's Gospel, because Jesus says something here, which is also intriguing and is connected. In John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. So he was he had Greek in his blood, as it were. And they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Don't know why he didn't go straight to Jesus. <laughs> Maybe they were too scared sometimes. <laughs> Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. But uh, seems like a very peculiar answer, you know. Lord, there's some Greeks that want to see you. So he doesn't say, okay, let's put them in the appointment book. Um, give them a business card. I'm a bit busy at the minute. No, he doesn't do that. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, look, let's put this in context, you know. Um, I'm going off on a retreat this weekend. I'm going to give a retreat in Slovakia. And if I turn up at the airport and someone walks up to me and says, excuse me, sir, there's some Romanians here to see you. Oh, look, just tell them the hour has come for me to be glorified. <laughs> then send them on their way. It's not going to work, is it? It's, it's, it's a strange thing to say. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Well, if it dies, it bears much fruit. So once again, you have this, he brings in this idea of the grain of wheat. We're going to take a look at the grain of wheat in a minute. First of all, I just want to pick up on two aspects of this scripture. One is Jesus' response. The Greeks say a very intriguing thing. Okay. Uh, sorry, Philip does. Some Greeks wish to see you. We wish to see Jesus. Now, the Greeks were not in the covenants. They were not the chosen people. That's that's the key to understand this. They were not the chosen people. Okay? Throughout John's Gospel, John writes phrases like this. This is in John 9, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who speaks to you. So he's speaking to a man who was healed of blindness. You have seen him. Okay. Um, if I go all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, um, Jesus has got his first two disciples with him. And in John 1.39, he says to them, come and see. 
And this is a, a thing that happens throughout the gospel. Um, if you go to verse 18, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. But here we have all the way through John's gospel, people seeing Jesus, people who are Israelites seeing Jesus. And when Jesus rises from the dead, Mary's Mary Magdalene is the first one to see him. And Jesus sends her to the apostles. Now, her, her testimony isn't, Jesus has risen from the dead. Her testimony is, I have seen the Lord. I have seen him. Okay. So why is it that when some Greeks approach Jesus and they say, we want to see him, instead of them coming to Jesus or Jesus going to them, Jesus says, now has the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Because the Greeks cannot encounter God until a new and everlasting covenant is established. Because Jesus was sent to minister only to Israel, the people of the covenant. When Jesus dies on the cross, the covenant floodgates are wide open and any nation is welcome in. Before the cross, only the Israelites had the promises of the covenant. The popular people could tap into those promises, but they did so by faith. They had straight, and Jesus said to those people, to one he said, no, no way in Israel have I seen faith like this. And another one he says, be it done to you according to your faith. So he speaks about faith. Faith taps into that covenant. But then in order to establish a new covenant where everybody can encounter him, um, Jesus has to be glorified. Now, here's a shocker. Brace yourself for this one. I did. Take, I, I spoke about this in Romania on Saturday, and I raised up a crucifix in my hand, and I, I spoke about this. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. I was actually speaking about John 2. Jesus manifested himself, and his disciples saw his glory. And I said, well, what is the glory of Jesus Christ? And I raised up a crucifix with the dead body of Jesus on it. And I said, here, Jesus is glorified. He is glorified in his weakness, in his failure, in his death and resurrection. But not just in his resurrection, in his death. And he says that. He says um, he has come to glorify the Father. The Father will be glorified in his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So we really need to understand that, or to gain some kind of understanding. The glorification of Jesus is in his suffering, his death, his resurrection, which contradicts our thinking in one way. Let's think about this one carefully. Um I want to think, because I'm a big football fan, but I also like all sports. I like athletics, um, gymnastics. I don't watch gymnastics much, but I like it. I like cricket. I enjoy watching that occasionally. What else do I do with my life? Um, and, um, uh, and, and cycling Olympics interest me. Right? Because I was once an athlete. I was once into cycling and swimming, running, kung fu, weight training, the works. I used to do everything. It was great fun. Loved it. If there's one thing you learn as an athlete, there is no victory without suffering. None at all. You have to suffer. You have to punish your body if you're going to win. 
you have to punish your body not just physically in terms of the exercise but also you have to punish your body in terms of your diet if you want to win the race you can't just eat anything you have to make sure you eat the right foods and the right foods not only keep you get you the speed or the strength but the right food actually helps to prevent injury and scientists have discovered this that if you're eating certain types of food it helps heal the body. If you eat other types of food, it slows the healing process down. So diet, exercise, um, all, all combined together with intense suffering. <laughs> intense, you know, to, to win an Olympic gold requires intense suffering. You have to really push your body to the limit. Um, so to win a prize in the world, people understand suffering is needed in order to obtain the glory and there is a glory in the suffering itself for example when i was an athlete when i was a runner and we'd be out on the racetrack and we'd be doing training runs and stuff you'd, you'd finish your training run and, and boy you are hurting your legs are hurting your lungs are hurting your your stomach is burning everything's hurting and you check your watch and you say hey i've got a new personal best so there is a glory in the suffering. Now, we, for some reason, we can see it in certain areas of life, but we can't see it in faith. We can't see the glory in the suffering when it comes to our faith. And when we look at this statement of Jesus, the Greeks want to see him. And that desire of the Greeks prompts Jesus to declare now has the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified because the the people outside of the covenants want to have an encounter with the covenant maker. And he says, his response to his disciples is basically, they can't see me until after I've been glorified. They cannot encounter me until after my glorification. And then he speaks about himself, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. So he is the grain of wheat, and he recognizes that he must fall into the ground and die in order for his life to produce the intended fruit. So when we look at him in the Gospels and the healings and the miracles and the ministry to the people of Israel, we're not seeing the real fruit of who Jesus is. If you like, you're seeing him as a prophet. That's how the Israelites perceived him. A great prophet has come among us, because that was the action of the Old Testament prophets. But they did not recognize him as the Messiah. Well, they kind of recognized him as a Messiah of sorts. A political Messiah, a David, a king who might take back the, might destroy the Roman Empire and give Israel the power that they seek. But no, Jesus is coming as a Messiah was to defeat the power of sin not to defeat men or women. It was to defeat sin and Satan. And the only way he's going to defeat him is for him to fall into the ground and die in order for that seed, which is him, to produce enormous fruit. Verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
the word hate, we have to be careful translating that. I should have checked this beforehand. But there's another one. There's another time when the word hate is used in the in the translation where Jesus talks about unless you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, you cannot um, be a disciple. If you actually look at the original Greek word, it doesn't mean to hate. It actually means love less, which makes a lot more sense. Love your life less. Love your family less than the kingdom. And that's appropriate. Once again, this is a challenging thing for many people, but if our, if our relationship with God is going to be correct, and if our life is going to be ordered according to God's law, according to virtue, we have to love God above all other things. And everything else must take second place. Now, here I am, a married man, so I love God above all things. The next love in my life is chocolate. No, the next love in my life is my wife. <laughs> and and that's appropriate. I should have said chocolate and beer, really, shouldn't I? And my wife knows this. She knows her place. So we have a very harmonious relationship. Um, but my wife knows she is after God. And I say, and I, and I know that in our relationship, I am second to God. And that's the way it should be. And then after that comes everything else in correct order. Okay. So, uh, and this is where you love your life less. I love my life. I don't actually know if I do yet, if I'm being honest. Do I love my life less? No, I don't. If I was being honest, I'm not there yet. There still needs to be a purification. But I can see the vision. I can see that God, by his grace, wants to purify me so that I love him to the degree that I could give my life. Not just giving my life in terms of being abandoned to him, to serve him, but also giving my life to the degree that I'm saying, okay, God, when you want me to go, when you want me to go to heaven, I'm ready to go to heaven. Now, I'm not there yet. You know, um, I'll give you an example of this. Whenever I fly <laughs> anywhere in the world, <laughs> yeah, you bet I'm there praying my socks off. Lord, please let this get to the destination, especially on takeoff. Landing I'm okay with. Takeoff is like, oh, my goodness me. And the rosary beads come out and the fears come up from the stomach to the chest. <laughs> I just think, Lord, get me to my destination. So there is a soul who is battling with trust. Um, but going back to this, he who loves his life less in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay. Um, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So it's still, still the same narrative. I just want to finish this narrative off before I move on to talk about what the first fruits are. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we know that there's this unity that we are with Christ. You see, my Bible now has given me as wrong-footed me. Thank you, translators. You see, in the, in the Greek Bible, there's no paragraphs. There's no breaking up of the narrative. But in mine, there is. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It then begins a new paragraph, which I was going to ignore, but I shouldn't have because it fits. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this purpose I came to this hour. So you see, it fits in with what the Greeks were talking about. I must send an email to the translator and send him he's got it wrong. I'm sure he'll be delighted. <laughs> um, so it's what the Greeks were talking about. These pagans who are seeking truth, 
They're in Israel. They've come to the feast. Now, I was going to pull this out earlier. What feast have they come to? Let me just see if I can find it. Um, it's the feast when Jesus is going into the Jerusalem. So it's the time of Passover. They've come to the Passover. Okay? Which is very handy for the next part of the teaching because we're kind of at the Passover when I go back to the Torah. So I'm just, I'm learning stuff here, folks. This is very exciting. Um, so um the the greeks want to see jesus they've come to the Passover. they've come to jerusalem for the passover and they want to see jesus and jesus talks about his hour and he knows that in a couple of years time maybe a year maybe two years i don't know he's gonna die on this feast he knows it this is the place where his hour will will produce fruit and he's saying to his father save me from this hour now, why does he throw that into the ring? Because that's the cry of every human being. People don't want to die. But Jesus is saying, shall I say that? I'm a human being. I'm fully human, fully God. Shall I say that? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, no. It was for this purpose I came. And, for, and uh, Fulton Sheen, the great American um, evangelist and, and uh, what was he, cardinal, said, Jesus is the only human being who was born to die. The rest of us are born to live, which I think is one of those beautiful, powerful sayings. So Jesus comes to to die. This For this I was born. And then he has the encounter with God, where his father speaks. Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing by heard it, and said it had thundered, or they said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. So Jesus knew that his Father was glorifying him, and he was glorifying the Father. The voice was spoken for the benefit of others. Okay? Now, I'm going to... So fling into the Old Testament in a minute, but first I'm going to hand back the reins to Aileen in the studio to play you something beautiful. Um, I have here King of Glory and it's sung by Third Day. Who is this King of Glory? Son of God and Son of
You are listening to Radio Maria, to our Credo program with Derek Williams, and we are returning for part two of this talk, Derek. Um, one of the things that really struck me when you were speaking was about the cross, and maybe my I think my understanding is that there are different ways of understanding the cross, all of which are true within our Catholic tradition. And one of the things that I've wondered about, and I wondered if you could, yeah, let me know about this one. When I thought about Jesus when he was on earth and how he went round and he he was limited in some respects in that he was he saw the people that he encountered in his, in the everyday life. And then when I've tried to understand the cross, because I find the cross really hard. Um, but when I've when I've thought about the cross, it seems to me that that was almost a point where he was lifted up, as we hear spoken about in scriptures. And that, I think, mm. goes also back to Moses, doesn't it, as we've heard recently with the snake. But at the point where he was lifted up, it is almost that that's the point that every single one of us through time can look and look to and understand the cross. And Jesus is there for each of us as an individual in a way that in his lifetime, of course, he was there for each of us as individuals too. But it was a point at which it was ex extended out and somehow that personal relationship with God was opened. I don't know if that's... Let me... Yeah, you're switched on. <laughs> I'm just being quiet on purpose, watching you try to get to the end of your question, <laughs> <laughs> which is really naughty of me. It is naughty. <laughs> I noticed. Yeah. But I like... <laughs> Sometimes watching people try to formulate a question which goes into a narrative which then comes back to a question. Yeah. And then and it's like, I know there's a question here. There is indeed. <laughs> and, then, and then it and then it finally comes out and the, the torture is finally over and they say, Okay, what what's the what, why are you looking at me like that? Interfere with me, interfere, say something. Go for um, it. We're listening. I I yeah, you you are quite right. Um I'm a big, big fan of the writings of the Servant of God, Louisa Pigoretta. Mm -hmm. And way back in the early 1900s, she wrote a magnificent book called The Hours of the Passion, which were dictations by Jesus about his final 24 hours on earth, beginning at 5 p.m. on Thursday and concluding at 4 p.m. on the Friday. So it begins with him seeking his mother's blessing at the 5 p.m. mark, goes to his last supper, his agony in the garden, He's being, um, I was going to say kidnapped, but he's, um, he's being arrested. And then he's into the questioning, the scourging, the imprisonment, the crowning, and then receiving his cross, which I'll come back to. Then his crucifixion, his words to the good thief and what, the, what those words did. And his death and then his descent. So it covers the whole life, and it, it talks more about the interior life of Christ. And this book has received four imprimaturs, so we know it's good. And it was the first one she published, so it's very popular. And then Meditations. Now, one of the things that he says is when he received his cross, he placed by grace in every fibre of the cross a dowry for every human being. Yeah, like a gift within that cross for every human being. It's one of my favorite sentences. You know, you sometimes have five sentences to ponder. That's one of my own. So when I look at any crucifix that Jesus is, is the dead on, I can say, there's a diary in there just for me. 
And when he when he goes through his passion, through his sufferings, um, he talks about what's happening in his interiority, and he's always talking about us. He's always talking about this is for these souls, this is for those souls. So he's constantly talking about us, and sometimes he's talking about the consolation we give him, because he, the souls who are faithful to Christ, he could see them 2,000 years ago, and he could the, there was a consolation for him that we would appropriate the sufferings. And obviously, when he's raised up on the cross, this is the piece de resistance. This is the moment, you know, the, those hours when he's actually crucified. Suddenly, he is completely abandoned to the cross, completely nailed to it. The sins of the world are upon him. And he's still evangelizing. You know, he's still saying, um, today you will be with me in paradise. Behold your mother. I thirst. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he's still proclaiming the gospel from the cross, and he's still teaching us. And those words aren't just for the people who are present. They're for us at all time. Yeah? So, so yes, it's, it's right. It is deeply personal. It is a inglorious mystery that this was the way the Father chose for his son to die. And it's um, it's remarkable what was going on in his interiority as he was suffering like this. And it's on this score, I want to just share something with you. You know, last week, I, I travel a lot to give retreats to speak at conferences. Often people invite me to a conference and I'm the only speaker. So I was in Chicago a few weeks ago, Friday and a Saturday was the conference. There's about just under 200 people present. The conferences I'm doing at the moment are all on the gift of living in the divine will. That this, all, all that I'm doing overseas, that's what people invited me out to do. And um, I said, you got about, you know, you got a couple hundred people in this in this huge, beautiful um, hall, as it were, this, this basically a wedding lounge. Um, and um, and so I had eight, eight one-hour teachings to give over those two days. So very, very exhausting, very intensive, but a great blessing. Now, last week, I was in Romania doing the same thing. A parish priest had asked me to come and give a retreat. The, the, the retreat was meant to be on the New and Perpetual Pentecost. But on the first day, I was really unhappy in myself with where it was going. And so at the dinner table, I spoke to his wife, and because so, he, he was a Byzantine priest who was married. And I said to his wife, is there any reason why we can't teach on the writings of Louisa? Because she was very much into them, and all the parishioners were very much into them. It was just for the, the priest. And she says, actually, yes, we can, because the bishop sent a letter saying it'd be fine if you wanted to. And I says, right, that's the green light. And then the priest came in, and he was like, yeah, okay, if you want to talk about that this week. A couple of days later, I was, I was, I'd done an hour of teaching, an hour on this, these divine will teachings and the cross and the passion and all that. And then um, I says, well, I've been speaking for an hour, so let's, let's take a break. And the priest was right in the front, right in front of me, about four feet away. And he says, no, 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 don't stop. Keep going. So I had to talk for another half an hour. So you can see how God changed his heart in such a powerful fashion. Now, a couple of days, when the, when the conference had finished, um, this beautiful couple 
asked me if I would give their son lift to an airport. And they said, you know, our, our son is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. And it'd be really good if you could somehow have a word with him. And I thought, okay, well, I'll do that. So we hopped into the car. And me, I'm, I'm of the impression that there's nothing I have to say. I don't convert this man. Jesus does. So I'm very relaxed about these things. And, um, and so he started driving off to the airport. And we were just chatting about him first and his life. But then eventually he says, you know, what, what, how was the conference? And I says, oh, it's great. I was telling him all about the upcoming era of peace. And he went, hold on, what? And I says, yeah, the, the era of peace that God has promised to the world through Our Lady of Fatima, through the writings of Luisa Bicaretta and other saints of the 20th century. We're coming into an era of great, great peace. And he says, no, no, that's not what my dad says. He talks about the apocalyptic teachings and the end of the world. And I says, no, 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 it's the end of an era. So everything's going to change, and there will be trials and difficulties and chastisements. But we're coming to a time of peace, a time of you know great hope. And the people last week really experienced great, great hope in their souls. They, they found that the teaching, which I give as an evangelist, lifted them up because I'm an evangelist. I'm here to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring love. And he went, well, that makes more sense, because if the religion was all death and gloom, why would people join it? And I said, well, quite. The church isn't about that. The church is about the virtues of hope and love and peace. Now, I have to tell you, this guy was turning on a sixpence. You know, one minute, when I first met him, he was cold and he was uncomfortable. And he was talking about the book he was reading about how everything was created out of nothing and atheism and so on. But as we started talking about peace and hope, he could not stop talking about it. That's all he wanted to know. He was focused in on this message of peace that I'd bring. And he kept on talking about it all the way to the airport, to the point that when we arrived at the airport, he was saying, how can I access these teachings? I want to see what you had to say to my dad's parish. I says, well, your mom recorded it all. It's all on video. You just have to go into YouTube. You see, so that's where a basic proclamation of the kerygma, the message of peace, changed a man's heart who said he didn't believe in God. And really, everyone believes in God. Some people are just in denial. That's the power of the proclamation of the kerygma, the basic message of good news. Now, Aileen, do I continue or do you want to pause to pop on another record for our listeners? I'm very happy to continue if you'd like. And I also have a piece of music, Derek, so I leave that choice to you. I have um, How He Loves Us is the next track. So would you like to speak a bit before that? Yeah, let me let me begin the next phase of this little journey we're having today. So in Leviticus 23, so we're looking at first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus is at Passover, and the Greeks say we want to see Jesus. And he says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified and to fall into the ground and die. Then, first fruits. Where does it? Where, where have you got the first lesson on it in the Old Testament? Because it's an Old Testament saying. It's in Leviticus 23, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, and this is at the Passover, Say to the sons of Israel, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, that you may find acceptance. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Okay, now, um, so think about what, what's going on here. In 
about this time of year, maybe a month from now, in those days, the Israelites would take their seeds and plant them. Then you get a few months of weather. You get the light rains that come in the autumn, and then between the autumn and March, you get the heavy rains, which mature the plants. The seed of wheat has been placed into the ground, and it has died. It's split open, and it has to split open and die in order for something unrecognizable and beautiful and fruitful to come out. So what you sow is hard and effectively dead. It's got no life in it until you sow it. So when you sow it, it's hard. When you A few weeks later or months later, it comes above the ground. It has green. It is drinking in the water. It is drawing up the nourishments, and eventually it produces sheaves of wheat. At the Passover, the Passover is about several things. Part of it is about the celebration of freedom, and part of it is about the lamb, etc. But part of it is about something else. And I'm going to park that, and we're going to have our song. <laughs> we look forward to hearing the answer to that one. This is How He Loves Us, and it's the mm. David Crowder Band. He is jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me and oh, how he loves us Oh, oh, how he loves us us all. And he is jealous for me Loves like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind How he loves us. Um, Derek, hand over to you again. Thank you. I can't wait to get this bit. <laughs> I like that. Straight over. Hand the baton over. Um, so here we go. This is, um, you've, I've told you about the, the sheaf of wheat. I've told you about the, the, the Jewish farmer sowing the seed. Six months later, at the Feast of Passover, they're ready to harvest. So they celebrate Passover. And then it's into the fields. But this is this is where this is the day after the Sabbath. So this is Leviticus 23, verse 11. The day after the Sabbath. So straight after the Passover, the, the Hebrew farmer will go into his field and he will look for the best ear of wheat that he can find. He won't bring in a dodgy one. He'll bring in the best one because this is for God. 
he will separate it from the ground. So he will cut it. So the sheaf must be separated from the soil. That's the first cutting, the first fruits of the harvest. And he takes that sheaf before the Lord, hands it over to the priest, and the priest waves it. Now, I'm going to do the wave sign for the sake of the studio. Hey, are you ready? So that he gets, he's holding the sheaf here, and he raises it up like that, and then he throws it to the left and to the right. That's called a wave offering, basically the sign of the cross. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. that's what they would have done um, 1000 BC. Um, so that's that's the first fruits of the harvest. What is the point of doing this? Well, it links in with the first fruits feast, which comes in seven weeks later, and which I'll talk about next week if I run out of time this week. But it basically talks about the feast of first fruits. What is the point of doing this? Well, when we bring anything to God, it is never for God's benefit. Never. We have to really learn this lesson. If God is saying to us, I want you to bring in an offering to me, whether it's tithing our finances, whether it's bringing him a material gift, whether it's giving God a sacrifice of some sort, it is never for God's benefit. We have to learn that. It is never. We never benefit God. God is all sufficient in himself. He needs nothing. He needs nobody. He has everything he wants and needs. Everything. So who does it benefit? It benefits us primarily. The person who is giving is always the primary beneficiary of the blessing. So you might think sometimes, oh, I'm, I'm going to donate this to Radio Maria. I'm going to donate this to Derek's ministry. And in our brains, our ego side is saying, um, okay, this is going to really benefit them. But actually, the primary beneficiary of any gift is the giver. Because the blessings of God upon the giver always outweigh the, benef the blessings upon the recipient. Because God cannot be doubted in generosity. So he's going to always bless you more than you can bless somebody else. Because it would be insane to think that you can bless me more than God can bless you. That, that's the ego side, right? So when we're bringing in something into the temple, into church, the first fruits, we always have to remember whatever we're bringing in is going to have be associated with a divine blessing. But we have to believe this in faith. So if we're just, if our giving is simply, yeah, let's stick my credit card into the machine, give the church whatever, and then off we go and just ignore it. There's no faith dimension in that. It's just a hardcore finance. I'm giving the church a hundred pounds, bang, there you go, off we go. I've given away a hundred pounds of my hard earned wealth. If we believe in faith that by giving in money to the church, to a charity, to an evangelist, to a radio station. We're believing in faith that by doing that, we are going to be on the receiving end of a blessing from God. We have to believe that because this is the way the law is written. The more you give, the more you shall receive. And you might say to yourself, well, is that a good way of thinking? But of course, because if you want to grow in your relationship with God, sometimes you have to start sacrificially giving into the kingdom 
in order to become a little bit more detached from your own possessions and goods. So it's absolutely vital that we realize that our giving is going to benefit us. It's vital. You know, if we're, if we're in need, sometimes the only way to get out of need is to give something away. Quite a lot of people believe in that principle. Well, here, the Israelite farmer has got his harvest in front of him. And unlike many farmers, he's not going to harvest it first, dig out some of the good, dig out some of the rubbish ones, and then send them off to the local parish while he makes money out of his harvest. He's not going to do that. But that's what our modern farmer will do. He will do his harvest first, and then he'll have his harvest festival. That's what we do. That's what happens every September. Yeah, We do the harvest, and then we give to God. The Israelite farmer did it the opposite way around. He gave to God first, and then he brought in his harvest. Why? Why? Because when you give your first fruits to God, and this is a principle that God gives the Israelites, you are consecrating your harvest to God. Which means your hand, your harvest is now protected by God, and it cannot be destroyed by insects, weather, or army. So God's protection rests upon it, because by giving God the first fruits, the rest is consecrated. Now, if we go to the, back to the New Testament. I think it's 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that we quoted, or 2 Corinthians 15 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. Then Paul throws in this Old Testament saying, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. By using that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that phrase, Paul is basically saying to you and me, because Christ is the first fruits, it guarantees the resurrection of everybody else. So Christ is the sheaf of wheat. He has, on his cross, presented himself to the Father. He has died. He's gone into the tomb. He's not just gone into the ground. He's gone down to Sheol. He's gone down as far as he can. No one can go any lower. And then he's been raised up to the very heights, presented himself to the Father as the first fruits of the resurrection. The Father then reveals that we are now able to consecrate ourselves. So we have baptism, we have confirmation, we have Our Lady, we have Sacred Heart, Immaculate Heart. We have all these different methods where we can consecrate ourselves and thus these things guarantee the blessings. And this is another word we need to use a lot more. The blessings are guaranteed. They are firm. You know, if you would say to, uh, if you were to go and buy a car and you put down a deposit, you're now able to drive the car off as if you own it. So with hardcore finance and a piece of metal, the idea of paying a deposit to guarantee a blessing works. Why can't that work in your relationship with God, who will bless you far more than any second than any car salesman? Basically, if we're saying that this can't work in our relationship with God, we're saying that the, the salesman, the car company, is more generous than God. It's illogical. We have to recognize that when we give our first fruits into the kingdom of God, 
that's giving guarantees something in return now i can go on about this again next week i'm going to look at the holy spirit as the first fruits of our inheritance um and once again it's a, there's a guarantee element um but first i'm going to just put aileen on the on the spot she's writing away everyone while she's listening and i don't think she's writing her accounts so i'm going to put her on the spot and see if she has any questions or anything she wants to raise about this so that we can feed into the narrative aileen any thoughts yeah i was thinking about the first fruits and how um what we give and i was and the word consecrated that you spoke about and I was thinking about how we ourselves can give ourselves as a first fruit and doing that throughout our lives. I suppose even every morning, saying our morning offering, God first. Before we can we do, but this can also be a cop out. <laughs> Go on, tell us more. Okay. If I say to God when I wake up in the morning, okay, God, I'm consecrating myself to your service today. Mm. Yeah. And then we just go through our day and we live our life giving ourselves to God throughout the day in prayer and stuff. Is there really a challenge in that? Okay, let me throw out another one to you. I get paid at the end of the month. Let's say I get paid two and a half thousand pounds in a month. I give 10% of that into the kingdom of God. But there's a challenge there because that challenges my lifestyle. That challenges, you know, oh, I could have used that for beer. I could have used it for a night out. I could use it to go see some football. I could use it for X, Y. I could have used it for me. What God is actually pointing out here with the sheaf of wheat is he wants us to give something of value. And personal consecration follows on that. But personal consecration is, in a sense, it can be easier than actually saying to him, I'm going to give you something in my life that I give away and don't hold back for myself. Yeah? Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And I think our money is what um it is it is so um entwined with what we mm -hmm. do and what we prioritize. And it is. I, I remember seeing a um a, some, a teaching method where you can you have a jar and then there are big stones, small stones and then sand. And the advice is to put the big stones into this jar in terms of what is most important in your life and then everything else fits around it. So mm. certainly, certainly I can see that the realising that, that money is very much intertwined absolutely with how we live. Therefore, it should that. be mm. one of the those first things that we think of. Absolutely. Brilliant. So let's go back to your first statement, personal consecration, mm -hmm. being aware of the time. Personal consecration often enables us to give of something else in our lives, but it doesn't discount it. If we take the Israelite people, they were personally consecrated to God from the time of Abraham. And Abraham's the first one who gives a tithe when he gives it to Melchizedek. So his consecration to God, there's an enabling factor in that, you know, knowing you're set aside for God. Okay, if I'm set aside for God, I have a personal duty to maintain my relationship with God, which involves me giving in to say, 
the church to say Radio Maria, people who are listening into Radio Maria, um, to say an evangelist who preaches on Radio Maria. I have an obligation to do this because these people are nourishing my journey in faith. They're helping me to live out my consecration, but they're doing it without a guaranteed reward. They're doing it for free. Therefore, I have an obligation to say, okay, if I'm going into this beautiful Radio Maria restaurant every day or two, I need to pay for the food. I need to pay for the meal. They're not going to charge me. They're going to keep on dishing the food out for free, as is that crazy evangelist on Tuesday afternoon and his daughter on Wednesdays. Therefore, I need to make sure this restaurant keeps going. So I'm going to make sure that I pay the bill, which doesn't really exist. So I'm going to just pay in. Because that means that I'm going to pay for the nourishment that God is giving me. And that is a good principle to use. It's also, um, certainly when you, when, when, we, we, when we give some of our money, mm. um, it's very much um, a point of commitment. And from commitment arises relationship, yeah. doesn't it? That is a very good point. Um, once again, if you go back to what you talked about earlier about the personal consecration, that's a personal commitment. It's like an abandonment to God. Yeah. And if I'm going to be abandoned in my life, it's illogical for me to not be abandoned with my life. So I may as well say, okay, God, I've abandoned myself personally to you. So I'm going to start to using my resources for the building of the kingdom and not for the building up of my own personal interests. If you see what I mean. So you're actually living out your abandonment. And you might say, you know, I don't need a gym membership. That money can go to the church. I don't need to go out for meals this month. That money can go into Radio Maria. I don't need to go on these expensive holidays all the time. I'm going to start using that for the building of the kingdom. And you put your tithe first. And I should put that in mind, folks. The first fruits are given first, not last. You tithe first, not last, and then everything else falls into place. And, and Derek, we're going to be hearing more about this, aren't we, in next week? What, what's happening next week? Next I'll week? talk about this. This week I've talked about Jesus as being the first fruits of the resurrection. Next week I'm going to be talking about the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of our inheritance, which takes the whole thing onto a whole other dimension. Because Jesus dies and rises, then the Holy Spirit comes. So we take a look at how that all fits together. Thank you so much for opening up so much today, um, linking the gift of Jesus, his obedience to the Father, the glorification of Jesus as the first fruit on the cross, and our own participation in that, particularly thinking about money as well, which we don't always speak about Will you um, thank you for speaking with us, Derek? And I'm saying thank you on behalf of everybody listening. Mm-hmm. Would you send us off with a prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the charism of teaching. We thank you for the fresh revelation on the Word of God, revelation, teaching, which has been there for thousands of years, revealed to us today. And Father, I ask you to please bless the listeners and. Give them courage uh, to look at what they give into the kingdom and to maybe ponder, can I give in a more sacrificial way so that my faith life can blossom in a new dimension? You know, can I, can I give more to 
God's work. To the work of evangelization, the greatest work that a person can do, the greatest thing we can have, Lord, because it's the work for the, the work of the church. So I ask you to bless them, Lord, bless them with wisdom. I ask you to bless the listeners with peace. And I ask you to bless them with vision so they can see the great calling that you've placed upon their hearts. And I, right now, once again, consecrate myself to your service. And thank you, Father, for calling me into the harvest field. And I trust in you for everything you provide, as do Radio Maria, who are manned with so many volunteers and produce so much fruit. So we thank you, Father, and we thank you, Blessed Mother. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.